You're listening to audio from Pleasant Valley Community Church. For more information about Pleasant Valley, visit our website at pleasantvalley.cc. So I heard an incredible story this past week about a man from the Middle East named Khalil who was a uh, Muslim jihadist and a member of ISIS. And I'm reading an interview with him, and he said, and I quote, We had been trained in the desert for one purpose— to return to Egypt and overthrow the government. We were ready to face any difficulty for the sake of Allah. We cared for nothing but the Islamic call. We had only two choices. One was to die and go to heaven. The other was to survive by winning the battle. I excelled in sharpshooting and was trained to be a sniper. We vowed to put an end to Christian evangelism, whatever the cost. One night, though, something very bizarre happened to Khalil. He was in training with his fellow ISIS members, and the leader of his group challenged him in particular to write a book seeking to prove the Christian Bible was corrupt. If you know anything about Islam, one of their biggest hang-ups is they are indoctrinated from the day they can... Uh, understand anything that the Bible has been corrupted over time, which is why when Muhammad comes along and supposedly gets this vision from the Lord, the Quran is the final and true revelation of God, not the Christian Bible. So it's a big deal uh, for Islamists. So this ISIS leader challenged him to research and to write a book seeking to help prove the Christian Bible had been corrupted. So reluctantly, Khalil uh, obeyed his leader, and he began for months diligently searching the Bible for lies and contradictions. And lo and behold, after several months, Khalil became convinced the Bible was actually true. And it was God's word. But he found himself in this incredible predicament because he was still Muslim. He was still a part of ISIS. But, but, but he, he knew something was changing in his heart on who God actually was. And so he began to pray in confusion. And, and he's, he paraphrased his prayer. And I'm quoting He said, God, please hear me. Show me your way. All I want, God, is to know you and to serve you with all my heart and soul. God, I'm so confused, though. I need you. Are you the God of the Muslims or are you the God of the Christians? If you're the God of the Muslims, take everything out of my mind except for Islam. But if you're the God of the Christians, then bring light to my heart to worship you. God, show me your way. Show me the truth. Please, God. And then Khalil said, and I quote, that night... I slept more deeply than I ever have in my life. And when it was nearly dawn, I had a dream. Now, we know God's been working mightily among Muslim people through dreams. And he said, in that dream, a man appeared to him that he just instinctively knew was Jesus. And Jesus said to him in the dream, Khalil, do you still have doubts about me? And he responded, who are you? And Jesus said, I'm the one you've been searching for. Read the book which he knew was the Bible. And after that dream, Khalil said, and I quote, I began to change from that day forward. People that knew me all saw the difference in my life. I had been a hateful, murderous man. I had burned down churches. I had robbed stores, so many violent acts, but Jesus Christ changed my life. And I began to act according to what the Bible says. I became a loving person. I am now in Christ, and all things are new. Church, nobody is beyond the saving grace and blood of the Lord Jesus Christ. If Jesus can save an ISIS member, he can save anybody. So it's an incredible story of a radical conversion 
of the most unlikely of candidates, an opponent of Christianity, becomes one who now boldly proclaims Christianity. And that story of Khalil is strikingly similar to what we read today in Acts chapter 9. Week 22 of our verse-by-verse study of the book of Acts, we see a man named Saul of Tarsus who is also a terrorist who hated Christians, who radically meets Jesus, not in a dream this time, but in a vision, and who is so changed by Jesus, Saul goes from being a terrorist and an opponent to Christianity to a man who would be the most integral leader in Christianity and a man who would write much of the New Testament that is actually setting in your lap right now. So let's look at this story, an incredible story. In Acts chapter 9, verse 1, the Holy Spirit says, Saul, still breathing threats and murder against the disciples of the Lord, went to the high priest and asked him for letters to the synagogues at Damascus, so that if he found any belonging to the way, that that meant Christianity, men or women, he would bring them bound to Jerusalem. Now remember back in Acts chapter 8, there's a faithful Christian named Stephen who was proclaiming the gospel. And they came along and they threw rocks at him until he died. And Saul, the text said, was the one who approved of his execution. But Saul is still hungry for more blood. Matthew Henry writes of Saul, quote, like a venomous creature, he breathed death to the Christians wherever he came. He puffed at them in his pride spit his venom at them in his rage. Saul was not satisfied with the blood of those he had slain. He still cries, give, give. Later in Acts 26, Saul would later recount, he had a furious rage in his heart against Christians. He hated Christians, but the question is why? It was a religious zeal, ironically, that drove Saul to wipe Christianity off the face of the map. Because from the time he was five years old, Saul would have been trained in the formal study of the Hebrew Scripture and interpretation. When he was at age 10, he would have studied the rabbinic uh, legal traditions of Judaism. Before he's even a teenager studying at the university in Jerusalem under the great Jewish scholar Gamaliel, who then by the time he was 13, Saul would become bar mitzvah, which formally recognized him as a fully participating member of the Jewish community. So all he had ever known and his father had ever known, and probably his father, was Judaism. Paul was as Jewish as they came, and he viewed Christians as apostate Jews who were a threat to corrupting Judaism. So the irony of all of the murder in Paul's, uh, Saul, Paul, that was both of his name's heart is the fact that he thought as he was killing Christians, he really believed he was serving God. In the same way that when militant extreme jihadists fly airplanes through World Trade Centers, they cried out worship to Allah as they did it. So the danger of religion is it blinds you from the one true God. So Saul wants to wipe out Christianity because in doing so, he thinks he's preserving Judaism, Judaism, the, the faith of Abraham and Isaac and Jacob. So this is a man with hatred in his heart to Christians, murder on his mind. And in verse 3, 
As he went on his way, he approached Damascus, which was 135 miles, by the way, northeast of Jerusalem, six days hike on foot. And he's going to Damascus because he had heard there were new Christian converts there, and he's going to try to get them out and arrest them. But on that path, suddenly, in verse 3, a light from heaven shone all around Saul. We learn later in chapter 26, it was at noon, and the light was brighter than the sun. Falling to the ground, Saul heard a voice saying to him, Saul, Saul, why are you persecuting me? And Saul said, who are you, Lord? He instinctively knew it was the voice of God. And he said, I am Jesus, whom you are persecuting. But rise and enter the city, and you will be told what you are to do. Now, the men who were traveling with Saul stood speechless. They heard the voice, but they didn't see anybody. So Saul rose from the ground, and although his eyes were opened, he saw nothing, completely blinded. So they led Saul by the hand and brought him into Damascus. And for three days he was without sight and neither ate nor drank. This week, this story reminded me of the eclipse we had a few summers back, I think it was. Remember all of the uh, hoopla around the eclipse, which, by the way, uh, put Katie's Kentucky on the map because the best place in the world to see that eclipse for the longest amount of time was right up the road from where I grew up. So between the fact that we have the world's largest country, Ham and Biscuit, and the fact that we had the best view for the eclipse, we finally, after thousands of years of human history, we, we made it on the map. But uh, remember all of the... Uh, warnings given, especially for, for kids, you can't look at the eclipse with a naked eye. If you do, you'll go blind. And so you had everybody selling these protective glasses and, and all of these things. I, I saw the story of a 71-year-old man from Oregon who in the 60s was a teenager walking home from school, and there was a partial eclipse, and he stared at it with a naked eye for 20 seconds. And sure enough, he was almost permanently blinded in, in his right eye uh, from, from that day forward. And so he was warning everybody, it's no joke. Don't look at that eclipse. It will blind you. And so... In Acts chapter 9, verse 3, though, Saul sees a light in the sky that is brighter than an eclipse. Saul sees a light that is actually the face of Jesus Christ, which is brighter than the sun because Saul saw the face of the one who created the sun. Saul tells us later in Acts 9, Galatians 1, 1 Corinthians, that when he saw that light, he saw the face of Jesus Christ. Now, you got to keep in mind, this is a supernatural appearance because Jesus, by this point, had already been crucified, had already been resurrected from the dead, and had already ascended back to heaven at the right hand of the Father. So Jesus makes a special appearance. Jesus comes back down, appears in the sky in the form of a bright light that is literally blinding. Jesus speaks audibly and reveals himself visibly to Saul in such a way that Saul could no longer deny this Jesus is the Christ. This is one of the reasons why I believe Paul later, he, he saw his Roman name is Paul, he's referred to later, makes the resurrection of Jesus so foundational to the gospel because Saul knew from his own eyes Jesus had been raised from the dead because he saw Jesus so clearly, it literally and ironically blinded him. And so in your country music, Mum of the Week, Hank Williams sings, I saw the light. Well, Saul 
literally saw the light of Christ on the road to Damascus, and it changed the world. This is why I believe later Saul inserts this into his theology in 2 Corinthians 4, 6, and he says, For God has shown in our hearts to give the light of the knowledge of the glory of God. How? How do you see the glory of God? In the face of Jesus Christ. Brothers and sisters, we can travel the world and see the seven wonders of the world, and we can see the most beautiful sunset and oceanside and the top of the Swiss Alps, and we can go to Wrigley Field and see a no-hitter with our own eyes, but nothing will wreck you like seeing the glory of God in the face of Jesus Christ, and Saul saw it. Verse 10, now there was a disciple at Damascus named Ananias, and the Lord said to him in a vision, Notice how Jesus speaks in so many different ways. Last week, Jesus spoke through an angel and then through the Holy Spirit. Today, he is spoken through appearing in the sky through a light, and now he is speaking in a vision. Ananias. And he said, here I am, Lord. Verse 11, the Lord said to him, rise and go to the street called Straight. I want to show you a picture of the street called Straight. This very street still exists. It is actually one of the oldest still occupied streets in all of the world. Just another evidence of the reliability of the scriptures. So he, Jesus says to Ananias, rise, go to this street called Straight, and at the house of Judas there, you're going to look for a man of Tarsus named Saul. For behold, he is praying, and he also has seen a vision a man named Ananias, that's you, come in and lay hands on him so that he might regain his sight. God is double confirming the message. He speaks through a vision to Ananias, go pray for Saul. He speaks through a vision and a dream to Saul. This cat named Ananias is going to come pray for you and lay hands on you and you're going to be healed. So God double confirms at verse 13. But Ananias answered. Now, Ananias here is, is, is kind of panicking. And we would too. Because Jesus is asking him to go lay hands on a terrorist who had authority from the government to arrest him and kill him. So imagine you're in Ananias' shoes and you're receiving this word. Ananias says, Lord, I have heard about this dude. Uh, How evil he is. And all the evil he has done to your saints at Jerusalem. And Lord, he has authority here from the chief priest to bind all who call on your name. Ananias is like, seriously, Lord? You want me to go in his house? That's a death sentence. So we were in North Africa a few weeks ago. And if you were at our family meeting, you heard us talk about it. One of the cities we were saying the gospel in is a a city there known as, as a breeding ground for ISIS members. And so imagine we were in that city and, 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 the, and the missionary there said, hey, I want you guys to go to this guy's house down here. He's one of the fundamental key leaders in ISIS. And I want you to just go in there and lay hands on him. I'm going to be like, I think you got the wrong guy. I got a wife and kids back home and I'm not going, God bless him, but I'm going to pray from afar. Who would sign up for that? Saul had the same reputation then as ISIS had today. Imagine the faith you had to have if you're Ananias to obey the word of the Lord. Friends, Jesus will ask you to do dangerous things. Verse 15, 
But the Lord said to him, go. In other words, stop arguing with me. Obey me. Go. Why? Because Saul is a chosen instrument of mine to carry my name before the Gentiles and the kings and the children of Israel. Now, we all know that Saul, who will now primarily be called Paul, becomes the greatest missionary ever to live. So Jesus kept his promise. And I hope this encourages some of us. Because, friends, no matter what we've done and no matter what our past is, God can use anybody. If God could take a former murderer of Christians to reach more Christians than anybody that's ever lived, then God can use anybody in this room because God loves using people with a record in a past because then God gets all the glory. God loves using jacked up, broken people. That's just what he's historically done. So the more messed up your past is, or even your current status is, you are an awesome candidate to be used for the Lord Jesus. But then in verse 16, here's why you're going to go to Saul. For I will show Saul how much he must suffer for the sake of my name. We know that Saul, Paul's life was nothing but suffering until the day he was martyred. So Ananias departed and entered the house. And laying his hands on Saul, the terrorist, he said, Brother, Saul, the Lord Jesus who appeared to you. You see, so Ananias knows that when Saul saw that light, it wasn't just a light. It was the face of Jesus himself. When you saw the Lord Jesus and he appeared to you on the road by which you came, he has sent me so that you may regain your sight and be filled with the Holy Spirit. And immediately something like scales fell from Saul's eyes, and he regained his sight. And notice what he does. He, he rose, and he was baptized. He didn't wait a year to be baptized. He didn't go through a class for six months. He immediately was baptized once he could just see the water. And taking food for the first time in three days, he was strengthened. What an incredible story that has changed human history. Which is why William Larkin writes, and I quote, the most important event in human history, apart from the life, death, and resurrection of Jesus of Nazareth, is the conversion to Christianity of Saul of Tarsus. It's right here in the Word of God. Four things we learn from Saul's radical conversion. And the first for, could come in the form of a, of a rebuke. Because Jesus self-identifies with his people. Which means the way we treat the church or other Christians is the way we treat Jesus himself. Did you notice how Jesus claimed that? So in verse 3, Saul sees the light of Jesus and is blinded. But then in verse 4, falling to the ground, he heard a voice saying to him, Saul, Saul, why are you persecuting me? And he said, who are you, Lord? And he said, I am Jesus, whom you are persecuting. Now, Saul had never seen Jesus up until this point. Paul, Saul had never laid a finger on Jesus. Saul had nothing to do with the crucifixion of Jesus. So how is Saul persecuting Jesus? Because Jesus self-identifies with his people. He says, Saul, when you come against the church, you come against me. Jesus takes it very personal, the way we treat and talk about and love or don't love his people. 
Theologians use language like the doctrine of union with Christ. So that in the spiritual realm, in God's economy, when you become a Christian, when you believe in Jesus, you are truly spiritually united to Jesus Christ. Christ is the head. We are his body. And the Bible uses such intimate, lovely-like language that we are the, the bride of Christ. We are one with Christ. So Jesus says the way we treat his people is the way we treat him, which is to say, if we were to gossip about other believers in the church, we are gossiping about Jesus himself. If we were to hold bitterness against one of God's people, then we are holding bitterness against Jesus himself. When we ridicule one of God's children, we are ridiculing the bride of Christ and therefore Jesus himself. Friends, when we withhold love or compassion from one of God's people because they have a different theology from us or a different ethnicity from us or a different way of worship from us or if they come from the other side of the tracks and if we withhold love for them or turn up our nose from them or just ridicule them all the time, we are in a real sense turning up our nose against Jesus Christ himself. So friends, let's be very careful. And I'm speaking to myself as much as anyone because I can be so critical. Let's be very careful though the way we talk about the body of Christ and other believers, let's be very careful with our attitude towards other Christians because Jesus takes that very personal because whether they are black or white or Asian or Hispanic or Republican or Democrat, whether they are Baptist or Methodist or Calvinist or Arminian, whether they wear pleated khakis or skinny jeans, whether they speak in tongues or worship in a crystal cathedral with robes, they are the bride of Christ. And Jesus shed his blood for them. And we better love them because they're family. And if we don't, the discipline of the Lord will be ours. Because when you mess with the bride of Christ, you are making a personal attack on Jesus himself. But secondly, because Jesus loves us, this is a form of rebuke from Jesus to his people now. He will sometimes put us on our backs and force us into a time of reflection so that we see and know him. Jesus loves you enough he is willing to hurt you. If that's what it takes for you to see him. So that's what he did with Saul. Saul wasn't getting the message. Jesus is like, okay, I'll throw you on your back. I'll take away your sight so that you will see. So, verse 8, after Saul sees Jesus and has fallen to the ground, he rose from the ground. And although his eyes were open, he saw nothing. So they led him by hand and brought him into Damascus. And for three days, he was without sight and neither ate nor drank. Now, blinded for three days, no food, no drink for three days. Saul was forced by Jesus, literally on his back, in a bed, hungry, thirsty, destitute. He was forced into a position to think about his life. He was forced to think about what he had done. Because Saul was so busy, he thought, doing the work of God. He couldn't see the one true God. 
And so Jesus laid him up. Sometimes we're rebelling from Jesus in our sin, and we just refuse to come to him to be saved. And he will do whatever it takes to get our attention. Jesus will almost kill you to save you. Other times we're saved, we're Christians, we know the Lord, but we've just become too busy for Jesus because of technology and Netflix and work and Little League and just life. We get so distracted, we begin to drift away from Jesus, our first love. So whatever the reason, whether it's outright rebellion against God or or like we love the Lord, we're just kind of too busy for him. We've got bigger fish to fry right now. Either way, Jesus in kindness, though it really hurts at the time, is willing to drop us on our backs if that's what it takes to get us still just to see him again. Sometimes to force us to see him, Jesus will stick you in prison. I know of many people in this church that were incarcerated, and that's where they saw the light of God. And they thank God for incarceration. Sometimes God will put us in a hospital bed or in the middle of a marriage or family crisis. If that's what it takes to see him, it's tough love, but it's wise discipline from a father who loves us So I just want to say, if you're in one of those seasons right now, embrace it. Embrace it and know Jesus is inviting you into a deeper season of intimacy with him. So don't waste the trial. Immerse yourself in Christ. Cling to Christ. If it feels like Jesus is wounding you, it's because he loves you. And as Spurgeon said, we have to learn to kiss the wave that throws you against the rock of ages. Because even if it feels like hell at the time, if it gets us closer to Christ, It's a gift from God. But third, if Jesus can save Saul, he can save anybody. I mean, to me, that's like the most clear takeaway from this passage. Because there is someone in this room right now, and you feel like you're because of you you feel like because of that abortion that you had, that you can never be forgiven. Or you feel like because you've been You've been battling homosexuality in the quiet. You feel like God hates you and there's no hope for you. Because of some of the decisions you've made, you're too far gone. You're a lost cause. But then you come to the Word of God, which was written on purpose to give us hope today. And you see an example of a man in verse 1 who is breathing threats and murder against the people of God. An evil man who wanted to wipe out Christianity. And yet Jesus, of all people, Jesus could have chosen to write the Bible. He chose the murderer of Christians. Jesus often seeks us and pursues us when we're not even looking for him. So if salvation is a game of hide and seek, Jesus found us. We didn't find him. 
because we weren't looking for him because we were dead in our sin. But Jesus doesn't come looking for the righteous. He comes looking for sinners. He doesn't come looking for the people who never miss church and who have it all together and are so good. They basically belong in heaven and have earned it. No, no, no. He comes to look for those who know they've not been good enough. Not for the healthy, but for the sick. Jesus communicates to us that the more jacked up we are, the better candidates we are to be saved by Jesus. Because then it gets all of the glory, which means there's no crime you could commit. There is no lie you have told. There is no sin you have fallen into that is beyond the power of the blood of Jesus. Because Christ has died for every sin. And where sin abounds, his grace abounds all the more. You can try to out the coverage of God's grace, but you can't. Because his heart won't stop coming after you. Jesus saves Saul as evil as they came to prove to us there's not a person in this room that is beyond the saving blood of Jesus. Not one. Which means of the five people you're praying to invite to the tent meeting this Friday night, they may be so strung out right now, they can't even see straight. But neither could Saul. And Jesus saved him. So you get them there on Friday night. And they can see the light of Jesus too. Lastly, I want to ask our Lord's Supper attendants, if they would, to go ahead and move to their places. Don't start passing out yet, brothers and sisters, but if you would move to your places. We're not done, so track with me. This is very important. Some of you need this last word more than anything you've heard so far. Because when you meet Jesus... You receive a new identity. Now look at this. Go back and see what is one of the most beautiful things in this whole text that it's easy just to skip right over. Ananias departed and entered the house. And laying his hands on Saul, he said, notice what he says to the terrorist. He says, brother. Brother Saul, the Lord Jesus who appeared to you on the road by which you came has sent me so that you may regain your sight and be filled with the Holy Spirit. Did you see this transition? In verse 1, Saul is a murderer. A few verses later, he is a brother. See, with Jesus, you're no longer a player, you're a brother. With Jesus, you're no longer an addict. That's not your identity. With Jesus, you're a sister of Christ. Jesus doesn't just forgive us. He brings us into the family. You don't just not go to hell. You're adopted into the family of God, and you get a seat at the Father's house. When you meet Jesus, you get a new name. You get a new identity. You're not just someone who Jesus tolerates. You're a real brother. You're not just someone Jesus puts up with, ladies. You're a real sister. When you meet Jesus, you're not just an old, dirty, rotten sinner saved by grace. That's not who you are. When you meet Jesus, you're a new creation. The old is gone. The new has come. When you meet Jesus, you are blameless. You are chosen. You are precious. You are righteous in Christ. God's not scowling at you. He loves you. You don't annoy him. He delights in you. He's not whining and complaining about you to all the angels. He's singing over you. You're not a slave to sin. You're a child of God. That's who you are. You're not a no dirty, rotten sinner saved by grace that God tolerates. You're a child of King Jesus. That's who you are. 
Don't you ever let anybody tell you anything different. The reason so many of us don't live like Christians is because we don't realize that Jesus has made us new. We're not who we used to be. That old person is dead and crucified at the cross. What that all means is there's now a place for you in Christ, not outside church, not outside the house of God for second-class Christians that still just can't get it together, but there is a place for you at the Father's table. You are accepted to the fullest with a new name. You are brother. You are sister. You are daughter. You are a son of the King. And Jesus is saying, come on in and sit down with me. And he gives us a little taste of that in the Lord's Supper. I want to ask our musicians to come forward and Brothers and sisters, if you would go ahead and begin to pass out the bread and the cup. When you receive the, the bread and the cup, just hold on to it. We'll take it together in a moment. I want to say this Lord's Supper we're about to eat and, and drink is not just a memorial. It is a meal with Jesus. Jesus meets with us in this meal. And this meal is a foretaste of the meal to come in the new heavens and the new earth. We're going to eat again. We're going to drink again, Jesus says. But the Lord's Supper also reminds us that you don't just belong at the Father's table now in this life, but you're going to belong at His table forever. But the only reason we can be accepted and belong in God's family is because Jesus has paid for our sin. And he did it through his broken body on the cross represented by the bread you're going to hold. And Jesus invites you into his family through his blood, which is represented by the cup. And so when we partake of the Lord's Supper, we are proclaiming out loud together, the reason we belong in the family of God is because Jesus has died in our place. We don't get to get into God's house because we're religious or because we're good people or because we're righteous in and of ourselves, you only get an invitation to God's banquet. You only get into the Father's house because the Son has made a way. He has paid for every sin. So this is why the Lord's Supper is only for Christians. It's only for those who have truly repented and believed in Jesus, and they've been changed by Jesus. So if you've not been saved, if you've not given your life to Jesus, this meal is, is God's gracious, let firm reminder to you, you are outside the family of God. You are in need of a Savior. You need the blood of Jesus. You need the body of Christ broken for you. And you need to receive him by faith today. If you're not sure how to do that, there should be a little card in the seat in front of you. Write down your name and contact info. And just write a note to us and we'll reach out to you this week and show you how you can become a Christian. And we'll baptize you Friday night at the tent revival. When you receive the bread and the cup, if, just hold on to it and just, let's just bow our heads for a moment and let's pray. Let's examine ourselves. Maybe there's sin we need to confess. Maybe there's bitterness in our heart towards another Christian and we need to reconcile that relationship. Maybe we need to get out our phone and shoot a text message or go across the room and grab someone and take them out and say, hey brother, hey sister, I need to confess to you something whatever it is just give the spirit of God space to search our hearts to know our hearts to prepare our hearts to receive this meal with Jesus